Please stand for a reading of the gospel. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who'd been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it, and they went away, one to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main streets and invite everyone that you find to the wedding banquet. And those slaves went out into the streets and they gathered whom all they found, both good and bad, so that the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see his guests, he noticed there was a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. And then he said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word today. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's so good to see all of you. I was away last week in true 2020 form. We took our summer beach vacation in October, uh, but it was wonderful to be away. Uh, Sindhu and her family are away this week, and so kind of squeezing in some uh, personal time as we are able, but it's very good to be back, although the lectionary is doing us no favors in jumping right back into a real doozy of a text, I must say. But first, let's maybe frame it a little bit. We're talking about feasting today. Before we get to the weeping and gnashing of teeth, let's talk about feasting. This is fundamentally a text about feasting, which I think we should be able to understand. In many ways, feasting is very accessible to us, something we can get our heads around. Yet in other ways, in the true sense of the word, when we truly think about what does it mean to feast, I think this is a difficult one for us to truly grasp. Why is that? Because culturally, all we ever do is feast. As Americans, we are known for our feasting. My wife and I have been blessed to travel and live really mostly around the world in different parts of our life story. And almost always when we tell people we're Americans or they quickly figure it out, we're known for a few things. We're known for our films, we're known for our music, and we're known for our portion sizes. Around the world, we are known for our portion size, our supersized culture. And that's the stuff of comedy. I mean, we've made countless jokes around our American love of consumption, our love of feasting. I had to laugh this week. What comes to mind for me is a scene from one of my favorite shows, Parks and Recreation. Uh, if you've seen the show, uh, there's a scene in which the local fast food joint, Ponch Burger, uh, has introduced a new size uh, menu, a new uh, menu of beverage sizes. Uh, and one of them, if you've seen the show, you'll recall this, they introduced the 512-ounce child size. <laughs> Asked why it's called a child size, they say, 
They say it's because it's roughly the size of a two-year-old child if they were liquefied, <laughs> which is a ridiculous statement, and you have to laugh at it. But they're, in comedic ways, speaking to this sense in which culturally we live with such excess, incredible excess, that 512 ounces would be a child-sized beverage. Because if that's what's normal for us, we don't actually know how to feast. We don't read a text like this and say, that's something I long for, this un, unobtainable vision of something so lavish and excessive that it moves my heart to joy and to longing. There's very few ways then, because we live at such a standardized level of feasting, very few things in our life that actually feel like a feast, right? Uh, in my family growing up, we were not a Golden Crow family, we were a Ryan's family. And Ryan's was the closest we got to feasting as a child. You know, you can make a plate six stories high, scarf the whole thing down and go back and do it again and again and again. It is gross, but it was feasting. The only other way that we feasted, and I think this is the best example I could offer us today as we sit with the themes of this reading, is Thanksgiving dinner. I think for us culturally, Thanksgiving is the only cultural kind of a staple that we have that feels truly like a feast. Because it's not in Thanksgiving, not just the excessive amount of food, but it's the care and the love and the intentionality with which it is offered. That's Thanksgiving for us culturally. It's an offering of love. And in my family, it was always hosted at my grandparents. And my grandmother would spend weeks preparing days cooking to offer this incredible feast. And we would often joke about having to be made ready for the feast, to use the language from our reading today. We would say, well, we'll fast for two or three days to, to make room for the meal. And it's an incredible spread, but for my grandmother, it was an offering of love. And that's how we received it, because some of it was our favorite food. Some of it, if we're honest, was, was not so great. Like the, most of my life, the turkey has been dry. You have to soak it in gravy to reabsorb moisture. And yet, because of the love with which that food is offered, it was and is and ever shall be the greatest turkey I've ever had. Because it is a feast of love. And I say that, this is a weird way to start a sermon. I say all of this to say, it's that spirit. If you've had a Thanksgiving meal, anything like that, it's that spirit, that heart of feasting in a loving environment where you're invited to come and feast in this way that I think we're meant to hold on to when we read this text. Because we're told, it's this image of this loving, tender, compassionate feast. And not just a feast, it's a wedding feast. And in Jewish literature, throughout the Bible, feasting is very common, especially as a picture of how we're meant to long for our life with God. Often feasting is used by the Jews to say that's what we hope for when God will make everything the way it's supposed to be. When God will, as the scripture uses this language of a messianic age, the age in which God himself will come and make everything right, it will be like a feast, but not just any feast, a wedding feast. And the fact that it's a wedding feast is significant because that tells us it's a feast of a certain nature. It's not a, um, it's not a frat party. It's a wedding feast. What kind of feasting is done at a wedding? And, and one of the things I do, just as an aside, whenever we're preaching from Matthew, I always try and go track down St. John Chrysostom's sermons on Matthew. He's arguably the most well-known, best preacher the Christian church has ever had in its whole history. And 
what he did is he preached all the way through Matthew's gospel and we have all of those sermons. And so you can go and find them. And for me, it's a good kind of safety check to say, am I like way out in my field here? Well, if, you know, if he said it, it's probably at least somewhere in the ballpark of being uh, an, an acceptable idea. And here's what he says about the reason that it's a marriage feast. About this reading, he said, why is it called a marriage? One may ask. He says this, it is for us to learn God's tender care, his yearning towards us, the cheerfulness of the state of things, that there is nothing sorrowful at that feast, nothing sad, but all things are full of spiritual joy. That's a wedding feast at its very best. That's the picture we're given. That's the way Jesus starts this story. It is a feast that you would be crazy to miss. And yet, what is the narrative movement here? What's the problem? No one wants to come. That's the feast that's being thrown, and no one wants to show up. Our reading says that people make light of it. They want to tend to their own concerns. They have business interests. They have people they'd rather be with. They simply ignore the invitations and say, I don't want to be there. So the king sends messengers again. This time, we're told, it's even a more severe result. It's not just that they can't be bothered, but they're actually really annoyed. And not just annoyed, they murder the messengers. That's a lot, that's several steps above annoyance. They murder the messengers in, in an effort to silence the message. They say, we want nothing to do with this feast. And yet the king continually seeks people out. He longs to bring wayward sheep home, to bring us into this table for feasting. And yet what's interesting here, and we have to sit with this reality, Jesus tells a story in which the king's patience is exhausted. The patience of the king is exhausted. He's weary and he's angry at their refusal of his offer of love. And I think that's something we have to see, that it is actually an invitation. He doesn't coerce them. It's an offer, it's an invitation, because it's a love feast, it's a wedding feast, and for love to truly be love, it has to be something we can freely say yes or say no to. Love to be love is never a coercion, it's never the king simply forcing his way upon his subjects and saying, whether you like it or not, you will be at my table. No, he says, I want you here, you can't imagine the feast that awaits you, but it is an invitation. And you're free to say yes, and you're free to say no. And so they say no. And I think it's hard for us to imagine a king of that nature, a king who would rule their country in such a way, a king who would actually give subjects such freedom. We imagine kings like we see in Hamilton, where they will send out a fully armed battalion or kill your family and friends to remind you of their love. We're not used to this type of king, a king who would actually freely give their subjects the ability to say yes or no. And yet you may say, discerning listener and reader, you may say, hang on, didn't we just read about the king burning down their city and killing everyone when they said no? Yep, yes, we did. That is there for us to deal with. And I will say, uh, with all sincerity, there are ways in which judgment is presented in the scriptures that make us very uncomfortable that are disorienting to us, and yet that is not the thrust or the weight of this story. And we have to realize in moments like these, we can't lose the forest for the trees. Jesus is telling a story that's meant to be provocative. It's meant to elicit an emotional response, and yet the thrust of this is time and time and time again, we see the generosity and the overwhelming 
extravagant love of a king and the consistent rejection of that love time and time again by his people. Again, St. John Chrysostom says, this indicates God's long-suffering, his great providential care, and the Jews' ingratitude. And that's the point of the story Jesus is telling. As a result, then, the consequences that we see really fundamentally are of their own doing. It's a self alienation. It's a self-isolation because they refuse his invitation of love. It's not this rash decree. He's not an egotistical king. It's not unprovoked hostility. We could put it that way. It's the citizens choosing to forfeit their place at the table. That's the thrust of the story. And so not to get lost in that, where does the story move? What's the main point Jesus wants us to see? He wants us to see that the feast is still on. All the invited guests have said no, and yet the feast is still on. God longs to feast with his people, so much so that he extends this invitation in radical ways. Again, maybe the emotion here, a Thanksgiving meal is helpful. Imagine uh, cooking, like I said, cooking for weeks and days and preparing, setting the table, it's piping hot, and then all your family starts sending you texts and they say, oh, I couldn't get off work, or I'd rather be with my friends, or your turkey's just not that good, <laughs> you know, whatever it may be, and you sit there alone, what would you do? If it were me, I would have triple helpings of sweet potato casserole, and I would turn on the TV and just stew over it and sit in isolation and swear that I will never throw a feast again. And yet, the story of the Old Testament is that kind of emotion. You can read the Old Testament. If you get lost in the prophets, if you get lost in some of the obscure Old Testament texts, think about Thanksgiving dinner. And think of not just one time, but what if for 10 or 15 years, you did the same thing and prepared the same feast, and every year no one showed up? You send out the invitations. Uh, you call your family. You send the text messages. That's the prophets. That's the role of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. They're the ones saying, come to the feast. Come and join us for this incredible feast with the king. And yet it's almost like our Lord, if I could use the image, if you'll allow it, um, and don't read into this too much. It's like he's the most um, compassionate and tender, loving grandmother cooking a Thanksgiving meal who simply cannot imagine going without a feast. Heart is so full of love that they continue to set the table, continue to invite, so much so that this is the heart of the incarnation. No longer do they send messages. It's like they go to your door and they say, I'm gonna come to you. I'm gonna come all the way out to you and say, I desperately want you to be here. You don't understand how wonderful and good this is. And it's not like a needy king, a king who's so insecure that they just have to have a filled table. No, it's a king who knows how good this is for you. And so he looks out and sees people begging in the streets and says, all right, that's it. I'm going to go out into the streets and bring them in myself. That's the heart of the incarnation. That's what Jesus does. He comes to us and says, no longer is it simply messengers, but this is the heart of God towards his people. He so longs for us to be here. It'd be very easy and convenient to just say amen and stop the sermon right there. Because that's kind of where I would end the, ser the, the story. If I were Jesus, I would end it right there. The snobby, entitled family members don't want to come to the dinner, and so you find incredibly grateful people on the streets who feast with the king. Thanks be to God, they live happily ever after the end. It's not where it stops, though. Here's where our reading stops. The king says to the attendants, uh, bind the person who came in without the proper clothing. Bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's where our story ends. 
you're kind of like, what? If you're tracking with the story, you're tracking with the themes of what we've just talked about, that is a weird thing to throw in to end your story, Jesus. What are you talking about? Why in the world are, is this like a a sartorial sin? Is he saying, like, make sure you never show up underdressed for the party. If you show up in khakis and a polo at a black tie formal, you will be cast into outer darkness. No, no, he's not. That has nothing to do with it. He's, He's speaking about something far more significant, far deeper, more central to the heart of what it means to be a human being. And just as this story tells us about the extravagant love and mercy and compassion of the king, it also tells a story that says, even if you're a person of the street and you're invited in, you're expected to feast by the rules of the palace. That as you come in, there's a sense in which you are meant to live by the king's rules. And that may sound negative. I don't mean it negative. Think of it more positively. You, as someone who has no right to be at this feast, are actually going to be made ready and able and worthy to feast with the king. That's the heart of what it's saying. And so when Jesus speaks of he's not dressed for the occasion, he's not wearing the proper clothing, Jesus is speaking to the way of our life, the way in which we live by the commands and the, the, the call of God, the ways of the kingdom, and saying we're actually meant to live this way. We in the church used this image. The church picked up on this story and used it when it talked about people coming into the family of God. In baptism, you were quite literally given a robe, a baptismal garment. In the early church, you were baptized naked. I keep pushing to bring that back and no one will listen to me. But in the early church, you were baptized naked and then immediately clothed, this idea that you enter the waters with absolutely nothing. You, you are bare before the Lord. And yet when you come out of the waters, you are immediately clothed with the white garment of the purity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, you are made able and ready to enter into the feast that you're invited in. That's why we, as a reminder, when every week we come to the Lord's feast, in a sense, we reenact that baptism. We say, let's make sure we're dressed for the occasion. Let's not dismissively ignore the incredible compassion of our Lord. Let's actually make sure our hearts are living in alignment with the ways of his kingdom so that we can feast with him. It's why we confess. It's why we pray. It's why we say the creed. These are things that help us align our lives so that we are dressed for the occasion. And so uh, maybe we leave it there and actually live into what I'm saying. And so, uh, Daryl, if you want to come up, we will do these things now. We will confess and we will pray and we will affirm our faith in ways that help us make sure we are dressed for this incredible, incredible feast. Amen.